Those of you who had the, the joy of travelling around Africa will have seen the, the great freedom that they have in those countries that we don't have, which is to just pile people in to the back of utes. I saw that a while ago, I thought, and it was kind of cute with Judas with his hand on the um, release. Uh, um. So, what did you think? Who, who do you think is probably the best known of the apostles? Peter? No. Judas? Seriously? Yeah. Peter? John's well known, but it, yeah. But it, it, it probably is Peter and Judas. I have not read Dante's Divine Comedy. I've, I've read snippets of it and seen pictures that go with it, which are kind of scary. But it has three parts to it. One is Inferno, where he takes you down the nine layers of hell. And down the very bottom are three people in the personal presence of the devil. And it's uh, Brutus, who betrayed Caesar. Cassius, I think. Uh, Dante had a particular obsession with the importance of Julius Caesar. Um, but the third person is, of course, Brutus, um, Judas. Uh, Dante rightly seeing that to betray a friend, to deliberately betray a friend, is about the worst evil that we can do. Then you go up uh, through a number of levels and you finish up with the glory of heaven and right at the top, uh, in sort of three circles of fiery lights, is the Apostle Peter. Um, not at the gates waiting heaven and judgment. That's a, a silly myth. I don't know where it's come from. It's good for jokes and jokes only at that point. But, and they're both um, major characters in this peculiar part of John's Gospel. One of the blessings that you get from the pattern that St. Matt's has had from long before I got here, just working through books of the Bible, is that um, we are forced to look at passages that we probably wouldn't, that you're not victims of my own personal spirituality at that level. So we'll look at the part that was read um, after the foot washing. So let's pray that God himself would open up your mind, open up my mouth, and make this time life-changing. Lord Jesus Christ, your words are life and spirit. And we pray now as we look at you in this last few hours of your life before your death for us, that you would give us humble uh, minds that are eager to learn from you, eager to unlearn opinions we've picked up from wherever, that we may believe and follow the truth about you. We do ask that you would transform us through our few moments together now. We ask this for your glory and honour. Amen. Well, I want to suggest today the theme is love. Now you might say, oh, not love, please not love. You know, I can do the love stuff without being told again about love. But I, I want to suggest to you peculiarly, although there are lots of other magnificent things in this whole section, particularly in chapter 13, the washing of the feet, which is clearly a picture of the cleansing where you start with Jesus and then a model for how you live. And then the passages that were read to us today, Judas, Jesus, Peter. Uh, as the part. But I want to suggest to you, it really is hung together on the reality and the importance and the beauty of God's love for you and for me. If you go back to chapter 13, verse 1, it says this, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And then in verse 34 and 35, right near the end, we come back to the issue of love. Um, I sort of think of it, which isn't probably helpful, it's like a clothesline, really. It's attached at one end here, verse 1, 
verse 34 and 35, and the rest of it is all tied on the question of love. I listened to a song this morning. I don't want to be too rude about it because for all I know, it might be your favourite song. It's on the glory of love. Um, I did not like it. Um, Things like this. I am the man who will fight for your honour. I'll be the hero you're dreaming of. We'll live forever. No, you won't. (laughs) Knowing together that we did it all for the glory of love. You keep me standing tall. You keep me through it all. I'm always strong when you're beside me. I've always needed you. I could never make it alone. I tell you what, Jesus would never sing that song to you. You keep me standing tall. I've always needed you. You make me strong. No, no. And it's just just full of silliness. You can look it up if you feel that you need to cleanse your system uh, if you've eaten some poison. Um, But but it does that thing where the claim is that this is the love that you've always been looking for, and it will satisfy you forever. Now, love does that. You are designed for love. But if you you think you're going to find it in romantic love, the the technical word for that in the Bible, well, there's a number of technical words, foolishness, but it's idolatry. It's making a good thing that God has given the ultimate thing. And it will, it will in the end, damage your life and the person you love. The love that we're made for is this love that, that speaks of in chapter 13, verse 1. He loved, Jesus loved his owner in the world. He loved them to the end. And the word, as many of you know, the word that's translated the end, in the old King James Version, it was translated beautifully as he loved them to the uttermost. It's the word telos. It's the, it's the telescope that looks and sees right to the end. And the important thing about Jesus' love for you, unlike the love of anybody else, is he will love you right to the end. It's powerful, it's perennial, it's permanent, it's pardoning, and it's beautiful. And so what we have here, firstly, is ultimate love. It is the love that is steadfast. And I do love the number of times, I don't know how many times it is, but it's probably hundreds of times, where the Bible speaks of and rejoices in the steadfast love of the Lord. It's not moody. It's not determined by how much sleep God has had or not had. He loves you with a steadfast, permanent, beautiful love. When you've sinned, he loves you the same as when you've just said your prayers, etc. He has a steadfast love of the Lord. And also he loves his enemies. This seems at the first part of Jesus' life to be the distinctive part of his teaching on love. You know, he sort of trivialises, in a sense, Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount, when we love our friends and love those who are nice to us. He says, worst sinners in the world do that. Love your enemies. What does that mean? Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who mistreat you. But then he goes on even further in this section here about what his love looks like. So firstly, the ultimate love. The love that you're made for. Uh, that love that all the other best loves are just a reflection of. Good and all as they are. Ultimate love is found in Jesus Christ. Secondly, this passage speaks of us of the fact that love is rejected. What Judas does is fundamentally to reject the one who is love. Now it's very common in our culture in the last couple of years. I think it might be to do with Jesus Christ superstar. I'm not sure. To have massive um, almost advocacy for poor old Judas as if he had no choice as if God just used him as a pawn as if God would ever do that you may use people right? you may have been used by people that God predicts it coming does not mean he loses his right to choose or the necessity of choice you say but I don't understand how the two things happen at the one neither do I 
There are two wills operating all the time. It is, as we've talked about before, exactly as we see in, in modern science, where we can see two things happen at the same time that are simply logically irreconcilable. The one that I've mentioned a number of times, and it's still true, we are yet to work out how light can travel by waves, which it clearly does, and how live, what light can, you do other experiments, it travels by photons, little bullets or bundles of energy. It can't be both, it is both. Don't be silly and say, if my little brain doesn't understand it, it can't possibly be true. It's exactly like that with God. You make genuine free choices and God rules over all things. Do I understand that? No. So what? I don't understand how my television works. Right? <laughs> doesn't mean I can't waste hours of my life with it. Right? We're not, we don't want to be so arrogant. And it is accidental arrogance and foolishness. It's unscientific, if you learn from the sciences, to pretend if my little brain doesn't understand it, it can't be true. My little laptop is a terrific little computer, but there are dozens of important programs. It cannot work. It's just too little, right? So is your brain. Right? It's not asking you to believe something that is clearly false. It's just saying there are two parts going on. So with, with, we have with Judas here someone who knows Jesus quite well, seemingly at one level, and you can run an interesting comparison between Peter and Judas because they both had very similar experiences. They were both called to follow Jesus. They both spent three years with him. They saw him raise Lazarus from the tomb. They are themselves used in missions and miracles seem to have been done um, as Judas did his ministry as much as when Peter did his. They were very similar and yet finished up vastly different. Although even on this night, they're similar in their appalling and tragic failure in following Jesus. I, there's not many sermons uh, in, in my life that I remember very clearly. Two from the guy who trained me, a, a wonderful man called John Kitson. And uh, one of them was, he's preached at Cronulla. I remember at the old elephant house down there, the church there. And he spoke about, you know, finishing up in Akeldama or at Pentecost. Judas forsakes, betrays Jesus, falls into an A-grade sin. And his life finishes on the earth at Akeldama, which is the field of blood where he died. Right? Uh, whereas Peter also betrays and forsakes Jesus terribly on that night. And yet he finishes up, well, he goes through Pentecost, where he becomes this wonderful vehicle of God's blessing to so many people. They do seem to be the two destinations, and we need to choose carefully which one we want to follow when we notice that we failed. So Jesus has clearly loved Judas. Jesus, Jesus washed Judas's feet. And that would have been quite a moment, because it's perfectly clear from chapter 13, uh, that Jesus knew who was going to betray him. He knew that halfway through this meal, Judas would go up and finish the deal that he's already started. He's thoroughly committed to betraying Jesus into the hands of his enemies, who Jesus knew and had told the disciples and, and Judas knew wanted to kill him. I don't know, you've probably been betrayed in various ways in work. People should have treated you better. People promised they would and didn't. But to have someone absolutely hand you over to your hated enemies for money and a measly 30 pieces of silver, which is how much you paid roughly for the ordinary slave, um, it's revolting. But Jesus washed his feet, knowing this was just about to go down. It would have been an interesting moment, I think, because Judas knew what he was going to do. So when, frankly, it may have simply confirmed in Judas, this guy has to go. He's not, he's not who he thought he was. 
But even the seating at the dinner, almost the scholars who study this stuff, and I don't, obviously, uh, the seating at banquets, they, at this stage the Jews for these sort of things did the thing that they apparently learned from other cultures of lying on their side. The Bible doesn't say you're supposed to sit at the table, you'll be glad to know. But almost certainly Judas is on his left side and John is on his right side, so his, John's head would have been closer to Jesus' chest. But we know that Judas was really close to Jesus because he can take the bread and hand it to him. Most of the people in sort of the U-shaped tables that they would have eaten at couldn't, Jesus would have had to say, hey, can you hand this down to um, you know, Matthew? Um, but he can just give it, he can dip it in the hummus or the vinegar, whatever it was that they had, and then hand it to Judas. So even in the seating, Judas either claims, but Jesus certainly allows Judas to sit in the position of honour. To sit there is a position of massive honour. Judas is up there, his feet are washed, the seating honours him, and then Jesus does this thing where John uh, asks him, who is it? And he says, it's the person whom I give this, um, this bit of bread to, in verse 26. He, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. We know in chapter 13, verse 2, 3, uh, Judas has been, it's being suggested by the evil one. But at this point, Judas has clearly opened up his heart and said, okay, I'm in. But Jesus giving him the bread is a sign of, it's a special thing that didn't happen at most dinners, but if it did, it was a special sign of honour. See, if, we, if a few of us go out for dinner together and we're sitting at some restaurant um, and the only person I'm liable to feed or to give you know, some of my you know, schnitzel or something like that, dip it in the gravy, in, is, is Alison. It would be kind of weird if, if we in the Lubbock went out for dinner and I, here, Andrew, yeah. There's a certain, certain honouring and intimacy in that. And it was like that with this. So it really does look as if Jesus is trying to win Judas back by honouring him and treating him, in some sense, in a way of being special. But Judas makes a cold-blooded decision to reject the love of Jesus. We don't know why. And frankly, friends, if the Bible doesn't tell us why, there ain't much point in sitting around in your life group trying to work out why. It'll be fun, but it'll be fundamentally useless. But on the grounds of doing something useless, it is my little suggestion that probably the problem Judas has is the same problem Peter had earlier on and the same problem that John the Baptist had with Jesus. It, it, is, it is the fact that he does his messiahship through suffering and through kindness rather than destruction. The way that Jesus loved and honoured some of the Roman soldiers that he met. The way that Jesus didn't just smash tax collectors and prostitutes, but loved them. It's sort of, you know, John the Baptist, if you've seen it, it's done beautifully in some of the recent episodes of The Chosen, where the, the, he sends some messengers, John the Baptist, from when he's in prison to Jesus, and this is in the Gospels, where they say, John wants to know, are you the one who is to come, or should we wait for another? John the Baptist is the guy who said, that's the one. And now he's beginning to think, maybe he isn't. Why? Because Jesus is not bringing in warfare and the destruction of the dirty Romans that he wanted. And it's probably that Judas himself shared that. Some suggest maybe he was trying to force Jesus' hand to make him, when he gets arrested, take up the sword. We don't know. But it's very likely that it's the very loving kindness of Jesus is probably the reason why Judas um, finally decided this guy has to be handed over. Either which way... He clearly chooses money over Jesus. 
We know elsewhere, John, who was there, says that Judas was the treasurer, a highly honoured position, but he was greedy and a thief. Well, much more could be said about Judas. We, can't, we won't spend too much on it. But just to see that right from the beginning, it's possible and it's hard to understand. It's called, the Bible speaks of the mystery of evil or wickedness. It is, it is mysterious, isn't it, that someone can be so close to the beauty of Jesus and the power of Jesus and the uniqueness of Jesus and yet sell him into the hands of his enemies. What it does tell us, friends, as, as Peter's sort of similar but not quite as bad misbehaviour is, don't be shocked when you find or hear of terrible things happening in churches. It has always been that way. We're a hospital for sinners. And sometimes people with leadership capacities get to the top of the organisation who really shouldn't be there. From the very beginning, people have done Judases. And you may have met people who once followed Jesus, who've walked away. And it is very very hurtful and upsetting. It, even, it, it clearly troubles Jesus, as we're told in verse 21. Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. One of the reasons he tells them that, and it's helpful for us to remember this, is in verse 19. Jesus says, I'm telling you now before it happens. Why? So that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. So the betrayal of Jesus, rather than causing us to go, yeah, maybe if Judas was so close and wasn't impressed, maybe he's not that good. And she said, no, no, no. When you see that, it's just an indication that I am the son of God. I am who I say I am. I can tell you the future about Judas and about Peter. Right? It's at, at one level, it confirms that belief. Like when Jesus says in 2 Peter 3, right? in the last days, people will mock the idea of Jesus coming again. Everything goes on as it always has. Right? But when you hear people mocking the return of Jesus, it, it, at one level it ought, it's uncomfortable, but it ought to strengthen your faith because 2 Peter says they will. They will mock the idea. They say, where is, the, where is this coming? Everything goes on as ever. No. So it is when we see the, the horror of what Judas does. He gives himself finally, little bit by little bit, to evil. And finally he's taken out. That is how evil always works, friend. When you're playing, you're playing with some new sin, some enticing, pleasurable possibility know that you may just give it a tiny inch but in the end there's every good likelihood that sin will eat you up uh, it just happens again and again that's one of the things the bible will tell you it happens with king david he's lazy he doesn't go out with his armies as the king should he's loafing around the house he sees a beautiful woman he calls her up to his place they commit adultery and he then murders her husband never crossed David's mind that he was going to do it. He just was going to take it a bit easy. And he saw a beautiful woman and he had a second look and a third look and, and before you know it he's brought terrible damage to himself and above all to her and she murders the, the woman's husband. Sin will always say it's just a little bit a little compromise. And friends if any of you are thinking about walking away from Jesus it's often in the foolishness of some sexual relationship I really do hope that you have the best sex in the universe, right? Because it, it will cost you horrendously. You walk away from Jesus, step by step by step, right? So if flipping better be worth it, it won't be worth it. The pleasures will be real. The Bible is very clear that sin brings pleasure. It's a passing pleasure and it will destroy you. Judas tragically rejects the ultimate love that he has in front of him. 
and it's there for a number of our reasons for our good. Let me have a look thirdly with you at the eclipse love. Peter. We know a bit more about Peter. We've often talked about Peter because this story happens in, in all four of the Gospels. It's crucial, isn't it? That someone as great and bold and genuine as Peter at the crucial moment denies Jesus once, twice, three times, even though he was warned. I think that's the part. I, it's not surprising that, that in a moment of heat and cowardice, he hides it, but he's been warned. But he still falls for it once, twice, three times. And we know how Jesus says it's so important that we're willing to confess him before men. But Peter doesn't. Peter and Judas are quite similar in some ways, and yet their destiny is entirely different. I don't know. I imagine you've all had experiences when you think, oh, I really, I really should have said something about Jesus. I really shouldn't have stayed silent. So it looks as if I agreed with the mocking talk of that. And I know what happens sometimes. We think, I don't want people to think I'm like those Christians that they hate. Here's the tragedy of that. If you don't speak up to these people who you work with, and they probably know they're at least semi-normal, right, the stereotype stays intact. Whereas if you just say, no, well, I, I actually think Jesus, whatever, is appropriate to say, just to say something to identify yourself with the Jesus who's being um, spoken badly of, or his people even. Uh, in the heat of the moment, cowardice can take over. So what we see, brothers and sisters, is from the very beginning, it's entirely possible for any semi-healthy church, like the earliest church and the smallest church around Jesus, to have rank, stinking evil in its midst and sad and pathetic cowardice in its midst. Part of the wonder of the Bible, I think, is that it's so realistic and it makes it so clear why we all need saviour, a saviour. Well, let's look number, uh, fourthly and lastly at the glorious love. When Judas goes, we have that statement, that ominous statement that John read for us, and it was night. Uh, John's gospel is, has been summarised. It's the gospel of the coming of the light uh, from the very beginning. And Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. His last statements in John 12 are about the light. He's the light. Come and dance in the light while you can. But the night is that picture of deliberate evil and darkness. Nicodemus comes to Jesus, we're told, in the night, uh, that of ignorance and death. It's night when Judas leaves. But it also begins something fresh, because now Jesus begins to teach in a way that he hasn't taught, uh, and he'll go on for the next couple of chapters. Verse 31. Sounds a bit mysterious, this, but you'll get them. It's got a theme. Verse 31. When Judas was gone, Jesus said, now, very emphatic, now, Judas is gone, the engine has just started up that's going to lead to Judas is going to go to the authorities, they're going to send the soldiers, Judas will show them where Jesus is, Jesus will be arrested, he'll be handed over for some jokes of a trial, he'll be handed over to the Romans, he'll be crucified. The engine is now running. Uh, now, the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. You know what the topic is, don't you? The topic is glory, right? That's what it's saying, that glory. But it's weird glory because what's really clear with Jesus is he's got this thing he talks about the hour coming and my glory, and it's crystal clear what it all means. When what we think of as a moment of shame and defeat and tragic loss, and many people do, Jesus thinks of as the moment of absolute supreme glory. 
Let me just take you back to chapter 12. Jesus speaks very similarly on this in a number of times. But in John chapter 12, verse 23, uh, Jesus responding to stuff that's going on around him, but he says this, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This is earlier the same day. The hour has come. Jesus keeps speaking about my hour hasn't yet come. The hour has come for what? The Son of Man, it's his favourite title for himself, the guy out of Daniel 7 um, who will rule the world. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, what does it mean to be glorified? It's normally it's the thing of, well, it's, it's the moment of triumph. If you're an athlete, it's the moment where you win the gold medal or you score the key try or you do whatever you do with carpet bowls or lawn bowls that means you win. Um, it's the moment where suddenly people go, oh, wow, you really are a champion and you really are a hero. Or it's an act of extraordinary generosity and courage where you sacrifice. Uh, you know, some people in the emergency services who sacrifice their health or their life. The moment of glory. We use it mostly, you only normally hear it uh, in ordinary conversation around sunsets, right? Because we just can't find a word. I mean, some of are so spectacular. One of the things I love about the Brindabellas is the sun collapses over there. It's just so different and so often it's amazing. Glory. Glory is the most beautiful display. And Jesus is saying, okay, the hour... The hour of glory has come. That's in chapter 12, verse 23. Look at verse 24. Listen, what does Jesus say the hour of glory is about? Very truly, I tell you, a grain of wheat, sorry, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. So Jesus consistently goes from glory, victory, beauty, splendour, magnificence to death. Because how does the seed do its... I know it's not magic, but it can look like magic. It's magic work. This little ugly... They're, almost, they're mostly pretty ugly. This ugly little nothingness. How does it produce a beautiful tree? Sometimes a tree with fruit as well. By dying. That little seed has to be ripped apart for it to release the life. Right? Down goes the root, up goes the stem, the seed almost disappears. That's the hour of glory. So here Jesus says, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, he will glorify him soon. Right? He will raise him up in resurrection. But the hour of Jesus' glory is this hour, when he is brutally crucified. Right? What happens to his body is what happens to his soul. And that's the thing Jesus wants you and I to keep on celebrating until he returns with the broken bread and the poured out wine. That's where you see the beauty of Christ. And one of the marks of someone who might be coming to church, but the penny has not yet dropped, is that they, they, they still have a part in their heart that says, oh, there's an obsession with the blood and the death. No, you, you don't get it, because that's where the glory is most wonderful, according to Jesus. And now it's going to happen. The engine is rolling down the road, and within less than 24 hours, he will have died for us, for our sins. That's the glorious love. That's where you see God's beauty. And that's where you see him dying, not just for his enemies, right? but dying brutally taking the punishment for the sins that we have done. So we can be utterly set free and clean. Right? Even if we've been a Judas or been a Peter. Which is why he then goes on to talk, what does he talk about next in verse 34? A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. 
As I have loved you, that's the, that's the newness. See, people sometimes, what's, what's new about this command? Uh, Moses has this command a number of times, that we should love our neighbour. But it's not just that we should love our enemies, right? which is the distinctive mark of the Christian person, that we wash the feet of people who don't deserve it necessarily. But it's the extent of the love. It's the willingness not just to give a, a bit of our leftover energy or time for people who we kind of like, but it's the laying down our life. It's that extreme sacrifice of our agenda, of our plans, etc., to do that thing which it most needs to be done. That's what Jesus does, and the call for us is to love each other that way. Right? Uh, Andrew Vella spoke on this, I think it was at Goodwin Village, and he said, this is the uniform God gives to his people until he returns. Now, that's how you can tell. Right? Jesus says people will be able to tell if you're my disciple, because what is he? He is the great and glorious lover. Right? And so if we're his disciples, we actually learn to live in this kind of safe but dangerous way, giving and giving and sacrificing. This is the glorious love, not the nonsense sung about in that silly song, right? but the love where God himself dies in your place and calls on you to become like him. And that is what God is doing, isn't he, in your life. That you're more loving this year than you were last year. Right? We're being transformed into the glory, as it says in 2 Corinthians. That's what it is to be Christian. It's not just necessarily to have better understanding of things, although that'll help, but it's deeper willingness to love and to give and to give and to give and to give and to sacrifice and to serve, to wash feet. Peter's love was momentarily eclipsed, but Jesus loves us to the very end. Well, I imagine some of us have got to say, yeah, I, I, well, you might still be in the position of a Judas, that you know you may be coming to church sometimes, but you really have sold your soul, uh, the reality of your Christian life, to something else or someone else. Could be money, career. Could be the temptation to enter into a, a relationship which is just forbidden. You are married to someone else or you are not married to that person. Right? Um, do not sell yourself in the end and lose Jesus. But if you do that, or if you know that in any number of other places you've just been a coward and you have been ashamed of Jesus. It's remarkable, isn't it? He's not ashamed of us. He's got flipping good reason to be. But we're often ashamed of him. We won't let people know that we're with him. Either which way, the call of this passage is come, back, come home. He has died for you. Peter does not go to the field of blood. He is restored in chapter 21. It's beautiful. And he calls us back and renews us and restores us. There's a lovely thing, isn't there, which is just there's so much stuff. Just the last thing before we do finally tie it up, that where Peter says, um, he asks this other disciple to ask Jesus. And he's described as the disciple whom Jesus loved. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Now, it's generally agreed by scholars of the book that this is John himself who wrote the book. And he begins to speak of himself as a disciple of Jesus' love. Now, to be frank, and I'm sorry to bring in such nonsense. So, I'm trying to work out the right word. People will do. Silly billies. With a PhD, perhaps, say. Now, this, of course, is probably a homosexual relationship. Jesus loved John. The disciple of Jesus loved. He did spend a lot of time with blokes. As I've shared with you, I have a mate, Thomas, 
who Alison has sometimes joked, you love Thomas more than you love me. Now, I don't, and it's quite different. But I do love my mate Thomas. I'm looking forward to holidays in a few months. I'm going to go and spend some time with him and his wife on their new farm. If you think there's any particular sexual attraction between me and that ugly mongrel, you're completely mistaken, right? right? He's not called Medusa or Yeti for nothing, right? Do I love him? I certainly do love him, right? It's, such, it's part of the pathetic, tragic, shallow nature of our culture that any mention of the word love because of our culture is all tinged with sexuality, where it need not be that at all, frankly. But John describes himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Mary and Martha describe their brother Lazarus when they try to get Jesus to come and help and says, the one whom you love is sick. That's in verse 3 of chapter 11. In verse 5 of chapter 11, the disciple who Jesus loved who wrote the gospel says, Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. So Jesus loved all his disciples. But it just seems that John just was a bit blown away by the fact that he was loved. Right? Even though, like the other disciples, he ran away at the crucial moment. And that's, uh, that's why he's, um, I think, one of the finest names of anyone in this church is a guy called Amadeus. Um, you'll know who this bloke is. Yeah, that's right. It's Mozart. It's Mozart right? Wolfgang, um, what does Amadeus mean? That, that's all Christians are Amadeus. It means beloved of God. It can mean lover of God or it can, or it means the, it can go either way. But far better for us to think of ourselves, we are the beloved of God in spite of our sin. Peter was beloved of God. John was beloved of God. We can be restored. If you find this, a picture of this statue, I'll give you money. Not much, but some. Because I've been looking for a picture of this statue that I, I read about in a book by a man who spent much of his life in India for years. Can't find it. But apparently, and he's not a liar, this bloke, you go into this Bible college missionary training thing for Indian folk taking the gospel out to their own people, and in the middle of the sort of the quadrangle is a very impressive statue of the Apostle Peter. And he's looking with a sort of a visionary look out through the gates of the college to let, taking the gospel out where it needs to go. And he's looking, it's very impressive. If you get closer to it you, and you look at the title around it, it says, Jesus washing Peter's feet. And then you look at the feet of the statue and there's Jesus, as we saw earlier, being the servant and washing Peter's feet. What is it that makes Peter impressive? and able to go and take on the world as he ended up saying, it is the love that he's had from Jesus. I imagine after this night of betrayal that he did and forsaking Jesus, he probably needed not just his feet washed, but his old legs washed, right? He'd got himself seriously messed up, but that is what Jesus does. So it's having been loved by Jesus and washed and forgiven, that is the thing that empowers us to love each other and to take the good news to others. That's why we go on about being gripped by the love of Christ from 2 Corinthians, being compelled by the love of Christ, that we want people who don't know his love, who are strange to become oh, and to be believers and trusters, but not to stay there, but to get to know Jesus well enough that love is the only word to describe it. It's his love, as it says in 1 John, we love because he first loved us. So to keep growing in that, and that's part of what the Lord's Supper does, it keeps saying, Jesus, I want you to remember I died for you. I want you to let that sink a little deeper into your heart and soul, right? that you'll know that you are Amadeus, that you are beloved of God. Let's pray. 
Uh, Lord Jesus, we all know that we are unworthy of your love. Uh, the, the ultimate extreme love that you have for us, your willingness to do anything to save us. Uh, thank you for your steadfast love that while we go up and down and are sometimes cowards and sometimes selfish, you just continue to love us because you love us because you are love. And we do thank you for the realism of this part of your word. But thank you, Lord, that you can so quickly restore us as we come back as Peter did rather than in despair as Judas did, to come back to you for renewal. So we do pray that we would continue to grow in our understanding of your love and to become more loving. Even this week, help us, Lord, to love others in some way as you've loved us, to grow in love. We pray this in your name. Amen.